Welcome to the 12th Street Daily, a podcast intended to encourage our faith family as we seek to become apprentices of Jesus. Well, how's it going, faith family? I hope that you are doing well today. As we continue on in this Cloud of Witnesses 12th Street Daily series, I just want to point out probably my theological hero, um, the one guy outside of uh, two, or really two guys I'd want to hear preach, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, that if I had a time machine and I could, you know, hop in the DeLorean and speed back through time, I would go and witness Charles Spurgeon preach. This man has had more influence on my ministry. Um, he's the only man that I've ever read a sermon and cried. His uh, sermon on Colossians 2 um, just led me to tears. I mean, the guy, I mean, just the way, his way with words. Um, the reason why um, I knew that it was his words is because of his strict editing process, which we'll talk about here in just a second. But Charles Spurgeon is the most published preacher of all time, all right? He was, he was a Baptist, so we can claim him. But many people claim him because he's so just rooted in all these different theological streams. Mainly, I would argue that he's the last Puritan. Um, he was the last of a dying breed, and he died in 1892. So let's talk a little bit about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was born in 1834 to a Christian family. Um, his father and his grandfather were actually nonconformist ministers. What a nonconformist was simply meant you're not Anglican. Um, they were in England. If you weren't Anglican, you were nonconformist. You didn't conform to the church of the day. Um, Spurgeon's earliest memories were of looking at pictures in the Pilgrim's Progress and Fox's Book of Martyrs. Two wonderful books, if you haven't picked them up. I read the, I read the Pilgrim's Progress once a year. Um, I think every Christian should read that book. It's incredible. Um, they have modern renditions of it. I have a couple of them. So if you want one, find me. I'll get you one. Anyway. Uh, Spurgeon wasn't very educated, didn't have a uh, like seminary background, uh, very limited, um, even according to like the standards of his day. Um, did not have just a high education, but that didn't restrict him from growing in the Lord. At the age of 15, he broke family tradition and ended up becoming a Baptist. His conversion story is one of my favorites in all of my uh, dead old guy conversion stories. Um, he was walking to church in the snow, and uh, the snow just kind of forced him into the nearest church, and it was a just a primitive, primitive Methodist church in uh, this little town in England. And as he's walking in, um, he sits down in the back row, and there's this lape guy up there preaching. There was only like 10 people in the entire congregation, a guy that was preaching when he was supposed to be preaching that night. And he's preaching on this passage of Isaiah, and he says, look to the Lord. And he just kept using these words, look, look to the Lord, look to the Lord. And he looked at Charles in the back of the room, and Charles recounts this in his autobiography. And this man looked at Charles and said, young man, you look very miserable. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, look, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon later wrote about this memory. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. Spurgeon was saved that night and became a Baptist. Um, he never uh, turned away from his uh, Calvinistic roots, and that's what a lot of people are kind of shocked by. Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Um, but the biggest thing was this. Charles Spurgeon said this, I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, he once said. I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist, but if I am asked what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. Goodness gracious. So let, that, let, let that be all of our uh, proclamations, brothers and sisters. Like, I mean, listen, we have Calvinistic brothers. We have Arminian brothers and sisters. We have, um, you know, 
all kinds of different beliefs, even within our own faith family, but just throughout the entire just breadth of Christendom. Like, there are all kinds of different theological beliefs because of just the way we interpret separate Bible passages. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be like a Calvinist section of heaven or an Armenian section of heaven or even a Baptist section of heaven as much as some of us um, may wish there was. Ultimately, the coolest thing is, is that our creed is ultimately Jesus Christ. So when we get to heaven, it's just going to be Jesus. That's it. And so let that be our proclamation, that our creed is not, I'm a member of Troll Street Baptist, which, I mean, we could tell people that. But not let that be our creed. Let uh, our creed be, it is Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon, as a teenager, became a preaching sensation. The guy was just filling pulpits all over the place. And his first pastor was at a small church in Water Beach, um, England. Um, he was very young, but his sermons were very mature. Um, his congregation loved him. He ended up uh, moving to uh, London um, at this historic church called New Newport Street Chapel. There were 232 people in this congregation, and they voted for him to preach an additional six months to fill the pulpit um, there after being at Water Beach for a year and a half. He was like 17, 18 years old. He was really young. Anyway, his uh, ability started to spread. Um, his word of his ability started to spread throughout all of London, um, and he never left London from there on out. Right? They asked him to stay six months, and he never left. He ended up um, filling the biggest halls in all of England. Um, some of them you may have heard of, Surrey Gardens. You've heard of that one. Ultimately, in 1861, his congregation, which kept extending his call, so they kept saying, hey, we want you to stay. Hey, we want you to stay. Hey, we want you to stay. Moved to the new Metropolitan Tabernacle, which still stands today in England. You can go to it. It seated 5,600 people. I mean, that's a mega church by today's standards, brothers and sisters. Like that's a, that, that is a huge congregation. And this guy would fill that room with no microphone or audio equipment or anything. His voice just boomed. One of my favorite fun facts about Spurgeon is when you joined his preaching college, which he started, um, that was met at Metropolitan Tabernacle, they would actually measure men's chest. All right, <laughs> They would measure the, their chest across because broad-chested men could proclaim the word stronger. He also believed his beard um, helped... Um, Get his uh, get his voice out there vocally projected. He kind of jokingly believed that. Um, Spurgeon was not just a great preacher. He was also a man who weathered a lot of controversy. Um, one of the craziest things that happened was when he was, before they moved to Metropolitan Tabernacle, they were meeting at a large building, and someone yelled fire in the midst of this huge crowd in standing room only. There was estimated possibly 10,000 people there at the church that day and that Sunday morning. And there was a stampede, and people like got really bad injured. I think a few people died um, at his church from getting trampled. And this like threw him into depression. All right, And Spurgeon battled depression the rest of his life. I mean, it was one of those things that it was just a constant battle for him. Uh, to the point that there are like, stories of his wife, Susanna, a nagging scripture to the ceiling in his bedroom. So when he laid down, he'd look at scripture. He was so depressed, he just needed scripture, and she did that for him. Now... What was the biggest controversy that Spurgeon went through in his life? The biggest controversy was this. It was the downgrade controversy. The downgrade controversy was ultimately what killed him. Ultimately, Spurgeon had a, um, had a magazine that he would publish called The Sword and the Trowel. 
The Sword of Travel was a very popular uh, publishing uh, back in that time. And in that time, there was an anonymous article written called The Downgrade, and it was calling out liberal theology within Baptist churches, and Spurgeon published it. Then he ended up publishing his own article, and he wrote this, Our warfare was with men who were giving up the atoning sacrifice, denying the inspiration of Holy Scripture, and casting slurs upon justification by faith. He did this, and then the Baptist Association that was in London, which his own brother was a part of, voted to disavow Spurgeon and his church from the local association. Um, it was a massive toll. All right, They, they, they quit spreading uh, Spurgeon's sermons in their churches. They really censor, uh, censored him. And his, de- his health, which was already so delicate, just started to deteriorate even more. He, saw, he started to suffer from gout. He had other health things. He was overweight. Um, and ultimately, this is what killed him. All right, this is what killed Spurgeon. He ended up dying in uh, 1892, and the entire city went into mourning. 60,000 people came for three days, over three days for the funeral. 100,000 people lined the streets for the parade, which was two miles long. Two miles long that followed his hearse to the cemetery. And flags flew at half-staff, and all the shops and pubs were closed on that day. This guy was the closest thing that we had, that we know of in that time period to a celebrity preacher. He was someone who literally carried the weight. Now, you may be wondering, like, how did other people feel about him? Um, the old school Southern Baptists hated him. He was like a vehement, uh, vehemently against uh, slavery. They also didn't like the fact that he, uh, you know, drank a pint every now and then and smoked cigars. So, you know, a lot of people don't understand that about Spurgeon. They look at him and they go, man, why did he do those things? Well, he was, a, he was a product of his times. And on top of that, you know, biblically speaking, that's a gray issue. He uh, took liberty in Christ. But this is the biggest thing that Spurgeon's contributions um, laid out. He had an orphanage that he started. He started a pastor's college that still continues to this day. Um, He established almshouses, which gave to the poor. And ultimately, the thing that I think he contributed the most to is just how he continues to shape the modern church. Spurgeon's contributions go way and far between um, just his sermons, but man, his theology, everything he has, like, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at my shelf right now and I have a collection of his sermons. And the reason why is because every time he would preach, he had four editors sitting on the front row. He would then, after he got done preaching, go and get their, um, get their manuscripts that they got from him preaching. He would go into his office, edit them, and then send them out to be printed on Monday. They would be sent out to the printing press, get printed, circulated all throughout the town. He never did an altar call, but at the end of every one of his sermons, he would say, Essentially, hey, listen, if you if you want to talk more about becoming a Christian or any of these things, please come to my office tomorrow morning. And they would say that they would be lined up around the block. People coming to hear more about Jesus from Spurgeon. So Spurgeon's ultimate goal in life was to proclaim the glory of God. That was his ultimate goal. His Everything in his life was proclaiming and living for the glory of God. So let that be our testament, brothers and sisters. Let that be everything that we do. Let it be for the glory of God. We don't have to be the most educated. We don't have to be the ones who are the most uh, prevalent in society. No, all we need is Jesus. I'm going to close today with this passage from 1 Corinthians that reminds me of the life of Spurgeon. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man.